Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Before we plunge into this episode, I want to thank you for your indulgent patience in waiting for its release. As we mentioned earlier, I'm running for higher office, and since I write the script and narrate a portion of the episodes, my campaign has really slowed down our podcast. As you might remember, I was running for the Michigan Supreme Court. A funny thing happened on the way to that election, and I'm now running for the Michigan Court of Appeals. A very long story that is not at all relevant to this podcast, except to explain the delay in releasing this, and almost certainly other episodes, through the November election of 2022. Please accept my deep apology. Enough of that. Today we will continue our review of Article 1 of the Constitution. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. And Sheila Guerin, thank you for your support, and effusive Aaron Messino, thank you for all you do. To get us started is bombastic Brent Bassett. The first article of the Constitution establishes the Congress. Last episode, we addressed Section 1, which creates Congress and vests all federal legislative authority in the Congress and divides the Congress into the House of Representatives and the Senate. We also discussed the beginning of Section 2, which provides that the House of Representatives is elected by the people of each state and establishes a two-year term of office with no term limits or other restrictions. The next provision of Article 1, Section 2, provides, No person shall be a representative who shall not have attained to the age of 25 years and been seven years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state in which he shall be chosen. The first requirement listed here is that any member of the House of Representatives must be 25 years of age. The idea of a legal minimum age was first proposed by Edmund Randolph in a set of 15 resolutions that he proposed on May 29, 1787. This Randolph Plan, otherwise known as the Virginia Plan, proposed a minimum age of blank. That's right, it just had a blank. Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Joseph Story, was a leading authority in interpreting the Constitution in the early 18 to mid-1800s. He wrote a very influential treatise entitled A Familiar Exposition of the Constitution of the United States. He explained the provision as follows. That some qualification as to age is desirable cannot be well doubted if knowledgeable or experience or wisdom is of any value in administration of public affairs. And if any qualification is required, what can be more suitable than twenty-five years of age? The character and principles of young men can scarcely be understood at the moment of their majority. They are then new to the rights even of self-government, warm in their passions, ardent in their expectations, and too eager in their favorite pursuits to learn the lessons of caution which riper years inculcate. Four years of probation after obtaining the right to vote at age twenty-one, then the universal minimum age, is but a very short space in which to try their virtues, to develop their talents, to enlarge their intellectual resources, and to give them a practical knowledge of the true principles of legislation. Indeed, it may be safely said that a much longer period will scarcely suffice to furnish them with that thorough insight into the business of human life, 
which is indispensable to a safe and enlightened exercise of public duties. Lecturing in 1790 and 1791, Constitutional Convention delegate James Wilson, who would later become an associate justice of the Supreme Court, simply noted that the Constitution provided that no one was fit to be a representative until the age of 25 years. He could not help but quip that, The duration assigned by nature to human life is often complained of as very short. That assigned to it by some politicians is much shorter. For some political purposes, a man cannot breathe before he numbers 35 years. As to other purposes, his breath is extinguished the moment he reaches 60. By the Constitution of New York, the Chancellor, the Judges of the Supreme Court, and the First Judge of the County Court in every county hold their offices until they shall respectively have attained the age of 60 years. How differently is the same object view at different times and in different countries? In New York, a man is deemed unfit for the first offices of the state after he is 60. In Sparta, a man was deemed unfit for the first offices of the state till he was 60. Till that age, no one was entitled to a seat in the Senate, the highest honor of the chiefs. Imagine that. New York, at the time of the Constitutional Convention, booted out of office any judges once they became 60. And in Sparta, you had to be 60 to be a leading political figure, which was really old in the ancient world. Well, I guess you can call me a new Spartan. I was appointed to the bench when I was 35, and in Michigan, I cannot run again for judicial office once I turn 70. Huh. I always wondered how that worked with you, Judge. In any event, the federal constitution diverged from Sparta and New York and simply had a minimum age of 25 years for the House of Representatives. The Articles of Confederation had no such minimum age requirement. That was because... Under the Articles of Confederation, who attended Congress was completely up to each state. They were, after all, individual sovereign states. For the Articles to dictate to the states who could attend the Congress would be like Russia telling France that the French ambassador was too young. Russia has nothing to do with it. The provision also required that any member of the House of Representatives must be a citizen of the United States for at least seven years. Being just a broad sketch of the Constitution, Randolph's Virginia plan proposed on May 29, 1787, did not have a minimum requirement for how long a person must be a citizen. On August 6, the Committee on Detail proposed a three-year citizenship requirement for members of the House of Representatives and four years for the Senate. The majority of the convention determined that three years for the House of Representatives was too short, more than doubling the requirement to seven years. Renowned historian Max Ferrand explained. The requirement of three years citizenship for members of the House was regarded as insufficient in keeping foreigners out of the legislature. The time was accordingly lengthened to seven years for the lower house. The question was a delicate one, as several members of the convention were themselves of foreign birth. One of these... Butler argued in favor of the restriction, frankly admitting that until he had lived in this country for some time, he was not fitted to serve in public office. Wilson, on the other hand, spoke strongly against it. 
When he lived in Maryland, he had felt keenly his being barred from public office on that score. And besides, it seemed anomalous to permit a man to share in the framing of a new constitution and then prevent him from holding office under it. On August 8th, George Mason argued that it was essential that some substantial period of time was necessary to protect the country from undue foreign influence. Although America was obviously settled by and welcoming to immigrants, it was essential that those who represented the federal government have firm ties to and a firm understanding of their new homeland. I am opening a wide door for immigrants, but I do not cause to let foreigners and adventurers to make laws for us and govern us. Citizenship for three years is not enough for ensuring that local knowledge which ought to be possessed by the representative. This is my principal ground of my objection to so short a term. It might happen that a rich foreign nation, for example, Great Britain, might send over her tools which might bribe their way into the legislature for insidious purposes. I move that seven years instead of three be inserted. Mason's proposal was adopted. On August 13th, James Wilson moved to reduce the citizenship requirement to four years, but the motion was defeated. In his Lectures on the Law in 1790 and 1791, he remarked about the citizenry requirement. Two reasons may be assigned for this provision. One, that the constituents might have a full and mature opportunity of knowing the character and merit of the representative. And two, that the representative might have a full and mature opportunity of knowing the dispositions and interests of his constituents. In the end, George Mason's position prevailed. One might quibble with the number of years, but the fact that the United States allowed naturalized citizens to become members of the House of Representatives was rather remarkable. America is indeed a nation of immigrants, and the requirement that they only need to be a citizen for seven years was quite striking then, and even now. Justice Story explains the groundbreaking nature of the seven-year citizenship requirement. No person will deny the propriety of excluding aliens from any share in the administration of the affairs of the national government. No persons but citizens can be presumed to feel that deep sense of value of our domestic institutions and that permanent attachment to the soil and interests of our country which are the true sources of a healthy patriotism. The only practical question would seem to be whether foreigners, even after they were naturalized, should be permitted to hold office. Most nations studiously exclude them from policy or from jealousy. But the peculiar circumstances of our country were supposed to call for a less rigorous course, and the period of seven years was elected as one, which would enable naturalized citizens to acquire a reasonable familiarity with the principles of our institutions and with the interests of the people, and which, at the same time, would justify the latter in reposing confidence in their talents, virtues, and patriotism. In other words, no other nation at the time of the Constitutional Convention would even consider having an immigrant become a member of the federal or national legislature. 
citizenship was vitally important to ensure that a member of the House of Representatives was well-grounded in American society and was loyal to the country. But because America was an immigrant nation, a haven from political and religious persecution, as well as a land of opportunity, allowing naturalized citizens the opportunity to serve in the House of Representatives was right and just. In fact, some leading founding fathers were immigrants, including Alexander Hamilton, James Wilson, and Thomas Paine. Other immigrants, such as Lafayette and Baron von Steuben, put their lives on the line during the American Revolution. Polish hero Kazimierz Pulaski, known today as the father of the American cavalry, was a general who was killed commanding American troops during the Siege of Savannah. Immigrants were not only loyal, but key figures in winning the American Revolution and the peace thereafter. They had proven themselves quite essential in legislative councils and other positions of leadership, formal or informal, and excluding them would be downright offensive to American sensibilities. But also notice, the provision does not even require that the member be an inhabitant of the state for seven years just a citizen of the United States. To be a member of the House of Representatives, a congressman only needs to be an inhabitant of the state at the time of the election. In other words, someone could move into the district the day of the election and be eligible for election. Moreover, a member of the House of Representatives doesn't even need to live in the congressional district. You can live in Albany, New York, and be elected out of New York City, or live in San Diego, California, and be elected out of San Francisco. At one point, the convention debated a minimum number of years to be a resident in the state, and the word resident was changed to inhabitant. Then the idea of a minimum time frame, other than at the date of the election, was rejected. In his Lectures on the Law, James Wilson pointed out that a voter needed to live in the voting district, and the arguments for that requirement applied with even greater force for the candidates. He also observed that although the United Kingdom had a similar law, it had been flagrantly violated, with disastrous consequences in England. Nevertheless, the Constitutional Convention did not require members of the House of Representatives to live in the district. Joseph's story forcefully explained the convention's rationale. The representative is required to be an inhabitant of the state at the time when he is chosen. The object of this clause, doubtless, is to secure on the part of the representative a familiar knowledge of the interest of the people whom he represents, a just responsibility to them, and a personal share in all the local results of the measures which he shall support. It is observable that inhabitancy is required in the state only, and not in any particular election district, so that the Constitution leaves a wide field of choice open to the electors. And if we consider how the various interests, pursuits, employments, products, and local circumstances of the different states are, we can scarcely be surprised that there should be marked anxiety to secure a just representation of all of them in the national councils. The requirements to serve in the House of Representatives are remarkable for how little they require. Citizenship, 
age and inhabitancy. That's it. This is amazing in the course of human history. There was no religious test, no wealth or property threshold, no business, professional, or similar requirements, no class or guild or bloodline barriers. Other than the ancient Athenians, this was the freest system in human history, and Athens was a city-state numbering at best tens of thousands, not millions across the continent. It was a true revolution. The next provision included one of the most controversial sections of the Constitution, then and now. It is often referred to in shorthand as the three-fifths clause. That clause is embedded in a much broader section, which provides as follows. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. The actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of the Congress of the United States, and within every subsequent term of ten years in such manner as they shall by law direct. The number of representatives shall not exceed one for every 30,000, but each state shall have at least one representative. And until such enumeration shall be made, the state of New Hampshire shall be entitled to choose three, Massachusetts, eight, Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, one, Connecticut, five, New York, six, New Jersey, four, Pennsylvania, eight, Delaware, one, Maryland, six, Virginia, 10, North Carolina, five, South Carolina 5, and Georgia 3. Ooh, okay, there is a great deal of information here. All right, hold on there, big fella. Stop hogging that mic because it's time for Mike Gerard to cast his magic. But of course, you know you're right. There is a bunch in this section. In essence, this provision provides that the members of the House of Representatives are chosen to represent about an equal number of people in relation to the nation's overall population. And remember, in the Articles of Confederation, each state was entitled to a single vote in the single House of Congress. The state with the smallest population was equal to the state with the largest population. The House of Representatives the Constitutional Convention created was built on an entirely different premise. Not only would the members be elected by the people of each state, but each representative would generally represent an equal number of people across the country, so the states with the larger populations would have more representatives than the smaller states. However, each state, no matter how small, would have at least one member in the House of Representatives, which means that each representative doesn't represent exactly the same number of people. Although it seems second nature to us, representation based on population was not easily accepted. It was the result of a dramatic debate in the convention. When Madison drafted the Virginia Plan presented by Randolph, he had taken the initiative and brilliantly framed the debate for weeks. But eventually opponents fashioned a counterplan. Presented by New Jersey Delegate William Patterson on Friday, June 15, 1787, the New Jersey Plan usually referred to as the Patterson Plan of the Convention, determined to improve, not replace, the Articles of Confederation. As such, under the Patterson Plan, Congress would have only one house, and in that single house, each state would have equal power, a single vote. In other words, the states would rule just like the Articles of Confederation. 
But this proposition fell, and the convention established a frame of government with a bicameral Congress, with the House of Representatives representing the people. In the end, the vote was lopsidedly in favor of a House of Representatives chosen to represent the people by population. The New Jersey plan only garnered the support of New Jersey, New York, and Delaware, and the Maryland delegation was split. The House of Representatives was destined from that point forward to be the people's house. The next question was to determine how the representatives were to be chosen. The Congress agreed that they were to be elected from within each state. Another method, not even contemplated at the convention, would simply allocate representatives by some kind of population by grid ignoring state lines. In other words, the whole country would simply be divided up by population and the tiny states might not even have a single representative solely dedicated to its people. And that was inconceivable. It wasn't even mentioned except as a boogeyman. Instead, the convention concluded that the representatives would be chosen within each state. To determine the allocation of the representatives, there would be a national census, that is, a headcount, which was to be made within three years after Congress first convened. Until that first census, the Constitution provided the number of representatives the convention believed accurately represented the number of people in each state. For example, Rhode Island, the smallest state, received one member, while Virginia, the largest state, received ten. The idea of a national census was moved by Edmund Randolph on July 10, 1787. He argued that it was necessary to ensure appropriate representation. Fellow Virginian delegate Governor Morris objected, claiming that the Congress should be unfettered in making this decision and that he was always against shackles upon the legislature. He was concerned that the Western territories would eventually have more population than those upon the Atlantic coast and that the original states would be swamped under the census. That next day, Roger Sherman agreed with Morris that the Congress should make the decision unfettered by a census. George Mason responded that, A revision from time to time, according to some permanent and precise standard, is essential to the fair representation required in the first branch. According to the present population of America, the northern part of it had a right to predominate, and I cannot deny it, but I wish it not to predominate thereafter, when the reason no longer continued. Mason further railed against allowing Congress to set the number of representatives, as opposed to allocating the representatives by a census. He understood that in England there were gross discrepancies in the House of Commons. Some districts had just a few families, while others had exponentially larger populations, and the same could happen in America. He explained that unless there was a constitutional requirement for a fair and equitable reallocation, that those in power now would suppress the majority later. From the nature of man, we may be sure that those who have power in their hands will not give it up while they can retain it. On the contrary, we know that they will always, when they can, rather increase it. If the southern states, therefore, should have three-fourths of the people of America within their limits, the northern will hold fast the majority of representatives. One-fourth will govern three-fourths. The southern states will complain, but they may complain from generation to generation without redress. Unless some principle, therefore, which will do justice to them hereafter, 
shall be inserted in the Constitution, disagreeable as the declaration is to me, I must declare I could neither vote for the system here nor support it in my state. In fact, Mason understood that if the convention chose power over principle here, that it would inevitably lead to civil war. The majority of people would not be suppressed by minority tyranny. Equal representation was essential to preserving freedom and the young republic. Strong objections have been drawn from the danger of the Atlantic interests from the new western states. Ought we to sacrifice what we know to be right in itself, lest it should prove favorable to states which are not yet in existence? If the western states are to be admitted into the Union as they arise, they must, I repeat, be treated as equals and subjected to no degrading discriminations. They will have the same pride and other passions which we have and will either not unite with or will speedily revolt from the Union if they are not in all respects placed on an equal footing with their brethren. North Carolina delegate Hugh Williamson responded that Congress should have a duty to do what was right and not be free to disregard it. He moved that a census be taken of all the free white inhabitants of the states and three-fifths of all others every blank number of years. Delegate Edmund Randolph agreed with Williamson's resolution. He explained that equality and representation was absolutely essential for a free government. If a fair representation of the people be not secured, the injustice of the government will shake it to its foundations. What relates to suffrage is justly stated by the celebrated Montesquieu as a fundamental article in Republican governments. If the danger, suggested by Mr. Gouverneur Morris Berreal, of advantage being taken of the legislature in pressing moments, it was an additional reason for tying their hands in such a manner that they could not sacrifice their trust to momentary considerations. Congress have pledged the public faith to new states that they shall be admitted on equal terms. They never would, nor ought to, accede on any other. The census must be taken under the direction of the general legislature. The states will be too much interested to take an impartial one of themselves. This idea of a census eventually swept the convention, and it would become a permanent feature of the Constitution. That the census would be regularly made was also approved by a 6-4 to vote. However, a different controversy exploded, the infamous three-fifths clause as proposed by Williamson. Williamson's proposal was that a census be taken of free white inhabitants and three-fifths of those of other descriptions. What the, quote, other descriptions, unquote, meant was not specifically delineated, but it was obvious enough. People that were not white and people that were not free would count as three-fifths a person for the purpose of the census. 
Note that this was not limited to just slaves, but included people of all racial minorities, and, theoretically, if there were white slaves, they would be counted the same way. Also note here that representatives are not made in proportion to the number of voters, or even citizens, but to population. So children, immigrants who could not yet vote, and women, almost none of whom had political rights, were still counted. Likewise, the Constitution specifically included indentured servants using the phrase when it referred to counting people bound to service. The enslaved were the sole exception. Randolph agreed with Williamson's proposition, but it was immediately opposed by South Carolina's Pierce Butler and General Pinckney. They proposed that the three-fifths qualifier be dropped. Future Vice President Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts countered that three-fifths was the most they should be entitled to. Delegate Nathaniel Gorham of Massachusetts argued that three-fifths should be used because the same formula was used in Congress before the convening of the Constitutional Convention. In 1783, there was a debate in Congress about changing the basis for taxation under the Articles. Taxation had originally been based on real estate, and a committee of the Congress recommended that it be amended to the number of inhabitants of every age, sex, and quality, except Indians not paying taxes. At this, the southern states objected, claiming that because slaves were property, it was not fair to count them as inhabitants for purposes of taxation. After a raging debate, James Madison proposed a compromise that slaves be considered three-fifths of an inhabitant, but the amendment failed. Nevertheless, the idea carried over to the Constitutional Convention. Delegate Pierce Butler jumped back into the debate, arguing that the labor of a slave in South Carolina was as productive and valuable as that of a freeman in Massachusetts, that as wealth was the great means of defense and utility to the nation, they were equally valuable to it with freemen, and that Consequently, an equal representation ought to be allowed for them in a government which was instituted principally for the protection of property and was itself supported by property. Interestingly, that lion of individual liberty, that most forceful advocate for the adoption of a Bill of Rights, Virginia's George Mason, could not countenance the idea of counting a slave as a full free man. He explained... I could not agree to the motion, notwithstanding it was favorable to Virginia, because I think it unjust. It was certain that the slaves were valuable, as they raised the value of land, increased the exports and imports, and, of course, the revenue, would supply the means of feeding and supporting an army, and might, in cases of emergency, become themselves soldiers as in these important respects they were useful to the community at large, they ought not to be excluded from the estimate of representation. I could not, however, regard them as equal to free men and could not vote for them as such. The southern states have this peculiar species of property over and above the other species of property common to all the states. Butler's motion to consider African Americans as equal to free whites was defeated 7-3. to three. The mechanics of the census and the proportion by which African Americans should be counted erupted over and over again on the convention floor. Northerners generally supported reducing the counting of the proportion of slaves. Why? 
not because they thought that slaves were not human, but because counting the slaves as full persons would have given the South more political power than they should have been entitled to. If each slave was counted as a full person, the southern states would gain more members in the House of Representatives as well as in the Electoral College. The North thought that only free people should be represented by the elected branch. If the South treated the enslaved as property, then the South should not benefit by having them considered a full person for their number of members in the House of Representatives. This flowed from the first principle of the social compact. The people formed the government to protect their unalienable rights. The people gave the government a portion of their natural rights so that government could keep the peace. In return, the government was to be accountable to the people and be run by the representatives chosen by the people. Consent was critical. But slaves were outside of the social compact. They did not take part in forming the government. The government was not accountable to the slaves, and the slaves had no role in selecting the members of the House of Representatives. So to have them count as full persons made a mockery of the social compact. To modern eyes, the three-fifths clause seems like a travesty. But in a real practical sense, it was a partial victory against the slave states. By not counting slaves as full persons, the North was actually checking the political power of the slave states. The North was trying to hem them in and reduce the slave power. James Wilson tried to cut to the chase by creating a compromise that the proposed three-fifths rule proposed under the Articles of Confederation be adopted by the convention. But the proposal originally went nowhere. On July 5th, a committee that had been established to try to break the stalemate over this and other controversies issued a report. The committee proposed that the first branch of government be represented by population. In particular, that one representative for every 40,000 residents would be elected, and that each enslaved person would count as three-fifths a free person. The convention sighed a collective breath of relief. The issue was decided right then and there. And just kidding. The report actually caused a new eruption of debate. Heated recriminations flew across the convention floor. On July 9th, 1787, New Jersey delegate William Patterson argued that slaves should not be considered as individuals whatsoever for purposes of representation. He argued that as slaves, they be considered in no light except as property. They are no free agents, have no personal liberty, no faculty of acquiring property, but on the contrary are themselves property, and like other property, entirely at the will of the master. Has a man in Virginia a number of votes in proportion to the number of his slaves? If they are not represented in the states to which they belong, why should they be represented in the general government? What is the true principle of representation? It is an expedient by which an assembly of certain individuals chosen by the people is substituted in place of the inconvenient meeting of the people themselves. If such a meeting of the people was actually to take place, would the slaves vote? They would not. Why then should they be represented? A smaller five-member committee was established to focus on the issue of how many representatives should be assigned to the states. After that report was made, South Carolina and Georgia tried to once again have each slave counted as a full person. But that motion was rejected 7-3. to three. 
There were proposals about how to conduct a census, and yet another attempt to, on July 12th, to have the enslaved counted equally as free persons, which was rejected 8-2. to Justice Story summarized the controversy and the convention's final compromise. The slaveholding states insisted on a representation strictly according to the number of inhabitants, whether they were slaves or free persons, with the state. The non-slaveholding states contended for a representation according to the number of free persons only. The controversy was full of excitement and was maintained with so much obstinacy on each side that the convention was more than once on the eve of dissolution. At length, the present system was adopted by way of compromise. It was to be unequal in its operation, but was a necessary sacrifice to that spirit of conciliation on which the Union was founded. The real difficulty was as to slaves who were included under the mild appellation to the number of all other persons. Three-fifths of the slaves were added to the number of free persons as the basis of apportionment. In order to reconcile the non-slaveholding states to this arrangement, it was agreed that direct taxes should be apportioned in the same manner as representatives. Story explained that at the time he was writing his great commentaries in 1840, that the slave states had 25 more representatives than if they were excluded. Story, however, reflected the reluctant practical perspective of the governing elite when he wrote, The apportionment, however, viewed as a matter of compromise, is entitled to great praise for its moderation, its aim at practical utility, and its tendency to satisfy the people of every state in the Union, which it confers as well as by the blessings which it secures. It has sometimes been complained of as a grievance, founded in gross inequality and an unjustifiable surrender of important rights. But, whatever force there may be in the suggestion, abstractly considered, it should never be forgotten that it is as necessary price paid for the Union, and, if it had been refused, the Constitution would never have been recommended for the adoption of the people, even by the Convention, which framed it. Although Story and others posit that the three-fifths clause was a key part of the great compromise that established the Senate and the House of Representatives, Constitutional Convention historian Max Farrand utterly rejects that theory. The counting of the three-fifths of the slaves, the so-called three-fifths rule, has very generally been referred to as a compromise and is one of the most important compromises of the Convention. This is certainly not the case. Attention has already been called to the fact that the ratio was embodied by the Congress of the Confederation in the Revenue Amendment of 1783, that the Committee of the Whole, by a vote of nine states to two, had audited it as an amendment to the Virginia Plan, that it was embodied in the New Jersey Plan, and that when it was incorporated in the Great Compromise, it was described as the ratio recommended by Congress in the resolution of April 18, 1783. Indeed, one finds references in contemporary writings to the federal ratio, as if it were well understood what was meant by the term. A few months later, in the Massachusetts State Convention, Rufus King very aptly said that this rule was adopted because it was the language of all America. 
In reality, the three-fifths rule was a mere incident in that part of the Great Compromise which declared that the representation ought to be proportioned according to direct taxation. Although some may agree with Farron's illumination, Alexander Hamilton, an ardent abolitionist, stated quite to the contrary. He reflected that without the three-fifths federal ratio, no union could possibly have been formed. Historian Catherine Drinker Bowen specifically concludes that the North was able to extract a different concession from the South for the Three-Fifths Compromise. The Constitution allowed the Congress to ban the slave trade in 1808. Considering how this notoriously barbaric practice was staining the honor of the nation and ruining the lives of countless innocents, this was not an inconsiderable victory for the forces of light. Still, some attack the three-fifths clause as inherently unfair and unjust. Anti-federalist Brutus, likely New York Judge Robert Yates, went to the heart of the matter after he quoted the apportionment text. What a strange and unnecessary accumulation of words are here used to conceal from the public eye what might have been expressed in the following concise manner. Representatives are to be proportioned among the states respectively, according to the number of free men and slaves inhabiting them, counting five slaves for three free men. In a free state, says the celebrated Montesquieu, every man who is supposed to be a free agent ought to be concerned in his own government. Therefore, the legislature should reside in the whole people or the respective representatives. But it has never been alleged that those who are not free agents can, upon any rational principle, have anything to do in government either by themselves or others. If they have no share in government, why is the number of members the assembly to be increased on their account? Is it because in some of the states a considerable part of the property of the inhabitants consists in a number of their fellow men who are held in bondage in defiance of every idea of benevolence, justice, and religion, and contrary to all the principles of liberty which have been publicly avowed in the latter glorious revolution? If this be a just ground for presentation, the horses in some of the states and the oxen in others ought to be represented, for a great share of property in some of them consists in these animals, and they have as much control over their own actions as the poor, unhappy creatures who are intended to be described in the above-recited clause by the words, all other persons. By this mode of apportionment, the representatives of the different parts of the Union will be extremely unequal. In some of the southern states, the slaves are nearly equal in number to the free men. And for all these slaves, they will be entitled to a proportionate share in the legislature. This will give them an unreasonable weight in the government, which can derive no additional strength, protection, nor defense from the slaves, but the contrary. Why, then, should they be represented? What adds to the evil is that these states are to be permitted to continue the inhuman traffic of importing slaves into the year 1808. And for every cargo of these unhappy people, which unfeeling, unprincipled, barbarous, and avarice wretches may tear from their country friends and tender connections and bring into these states, they are to be rewarded by having an increase of members in the general assembly. Brutus's attack was direct and elaborate. But another critic, Thomas B. Waite, writing to George Thatcher, was a bit more direct and sharp. Tell me, 
if you can, why a Southern Negro in his present debased condition is any more entitled to representation than a Northern Bullock. Both are mere pieces of property and nothing more. The latter is equally a free agent with the former. We apologize for the archaic language, but for the sake of historical accuracy, we maintain the language actually used. Countering this line of attack, specifically in connection with Brutus, was the writer under the pseudonym Mark Anthony. He argued that although slavery was terrible, it could not be eliminated, and that the system proposed by the Constitution was just as fair, if not fairer, than any other to be proposed. Is Brutus really misled? Or does he only attempt to mislead others and to avail himself of our strong disapprobation of slavery? The practice of slavery among our Confederates ought to be regretted by us, but it is evidently beyond our control. Do we in fact countenance or give encouragement to it by consenting to this rule of apportionment more than we should? by concurring with another. Mark Anthony then reviewed a variety of different ways of apportioning the representatives, such as based on wealth, property holdings, and others, and explained that slavery would always inflate the number of representatives in the South. This, of course, utterly ignored the obvious answer, only counting free people in the census. In addition to the three-fifths clause, there was another essential portion of the apportionment that stings today, the exemption of Native Americans. At the time the Constitutional Convention was convened, Native Americans were generally treated as not being citizens of the United States, but members of their independent nations or tribes who lived on their own lands. Those who remained under the jurisdiction of the Native American nations were not taxed and therefore it seemed to make sense to exempt them from being considered residents of the states. On the other hand, those Native Americans who were assimilated in the broader American society would be taxed and therefore appropriately counted for purposes of representation. The Constitution also established that the census would happen within three years after the Congress began to meet, and it specifically listed out the number of representatives for the first Congress which would be superseded once the census was taken. The Constitution also provided that the number of representatives would not exceed one for every 30,000 people. And so the Constitution that was drafted was the product of flawed men, in a flawed time, muddling their way through flawed and often tragic history. We never said the Constitution was perfect, and hardly anyone thought so at the time it was drafted. The sin of slavery plagued the Convention, the Constitution, and the nation forevermore. Some key takeaways from this episode. Members of the House of Representatives are required to be at least 25 years old, a citizen of the United States for at least seven years, and an inhabitant in the state, not district, in which they are elected. The number of representatives are determined by population, but each state must have at least one representative. The number of representatives is determined by a census, within three years after the adoption of the Constitution, and every 10 years thereafter. The census would count all free people and three-fifths of all slaves and exclude Native Americans not paying taxes. This was the price for the Constitution, at least in the minds of many, and the price would be paid back in blood and death 
and suffering for the enslaved and the nation as a whole before, during, and after the Civil War, even until today. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skonechny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and the multi-talented, bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from our history, along with the fantastic resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.